Good morning. It's a great day to be here. Hope that you have been encouraged already by your own participation in giving praise to God. It's not about whether you like what's happened here. It's whether you've participated in it or not. And uh, there's been plenty here already that we've been able to do that's been a blessing to all of us and hope that you receive it that way. I, I noticed as coming in that there were some old, old friends, Terry and Anita Greenway and Jim and Nyla Stewart who are coming in. And yeah, Jimmy Stewart's in our midst today. You could go home and, and tell people that. You don't, some people are like, who's Jimmy Stewart? That is a sin. That is a sin. Repent right now. Anyway, these, these folks, uh, we lived right behind, and Kenneth, we lived in front of Jim and Nyla in Terry and Anita's old house. We moved in when they moved out. And uh, one of the things we learned, you remember that story I told you about mowing the yard of the guy who didn't like the way I mowed it, even though I did it as a service? That's him, okay? So I just want you to know. Anyway, so th there was a Sunday very early in our time in Kennett where we go in the house, we turn, we, you know how you turn on the light when you go in the house, turn on the light, and none of the lights came on. Thought maybe that bulb went out. There was no light working in the house at all. Jim had gotten in there. He still had a key, and he got in there, and he took out every light bulb. I mean, in the stove, in the refrigerator, in the freezer, every light was out. And when I saw them come down the aisle today, I gave them a hug and I looked at Melissa and said, did you lock the door? Did you lock the door? I just want to know, is the door locked? I'm serious, but what a great thing and a blessing to see them. Uh, it's like trip down memory lane for Valley View people. Tonight, David Gibson's going to be giving a report on Romania and, and also preaching a little bit. And it's always a delight to be around that guy. <laughs> yeah, it's a lie. It's great. And you're going to have a great time tonight. We're going to have a great time just reconnecting with him. Next Sunday, Michael Meredith will be speaking because I'll be gone at least in the morning. And, and, and I, I got to meet, eat lunch with him today, uh, this week, and he is a refreshing guy. He's going to be, you're just going to love having him back. So it's going to be like a trip down memory lane for you. I want to I say a personal plug about the October 28th Sunday night. There'll be a, a group meeting here for sure, but there'll be nine other groups meeting in different places where people don't normally get worship brought to them. And I really want to encourage you, if you're one of these people, I've got to be in the church building, I want you to step out of your comfort zone and sign one of those. I'm going to be in Bay at Margie Moon's house, as an arrangement, but there's going to be different men who are going to conduct the, the, the devotional and the song leading at different places. Some of our shut-ins haven't been in worship in a long time. And when I called and I said, is it going to be okay if we bring a group over there and worship in your house? I wish you could hear their response. They cannot wait for us to get there. And guys, I can't think of a better service than to take the worship of God to somebody's house when they can't get out. That's one of the things we'll be doing on that October 28th. Find one of those lists. Find a place you might enjoy. It could be as easy as the villa down this way, or it could be at NEA Hospital in the, in the chapel. And we're gonna, they're going to send out an announcement to anybody who happens to be visiting a loved one in the hospital that a worship service is being offered in the chapel. I can't think of a better service we can do than that that blesses people in contact with God too. So that Sunday night, please, if you want to come here and worship, that's fine. But if you can take it on the road and go somewhere and bless somebody, even while you're worshiping like new, normal, let's do that together as a church. Jesus loves me, this I know. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. 
So two or three weeks ago, a weird, weird thing happens on a Tuesday night, uh, or Tuesday afternoon, about 3 o'clock. A guy put, sticks his head in my office says, you know who I am? He wore a Vietnam vet hat. It was my biological dad, whom I hadn't seen in 36 years. Weird. He chose that morning at 3 in the morning. He couldn't sleep anymore because this thing was on his conscience. And he decided, or something like that, and he says, I've got to go down and see him. I've got to go down and see him and talk with him so that he drove that 12 hours down here to visit. Now one of the things that I wanted to do was ask about some biological questions because as you probably know there's all these hereditary things you're concerned about you know and so I started asking questions about how people had died or who these people were. I have siblings I've never met and all that sort of thing and so he kinda gave me names to it but I, I asked him how did your dad die? And it was kind of a sober question, sobering question for him. He reflected on it a minute, and then he said, well, he pulled his car in a garage, he kept it running, and he sat there. He simply took his own life. It wasn't long after this, just a couple weeks ago maybe, that in Fredertown, Missouri, where I grew up, small town, one of the people I graduated with, this do doctor's daughter, beautiful girl, great girl, always had everything going for her, and she married a great fella who went in the military, at least in the National Guard, but he did several stints in Afghanistan, and he's suffering from PTSD. It's as legit as I can tell you. The things that those guys experience, and it, it, it comes back and it makes everything just really worse and heightened sense of sensitivity about things. And they just had a, a normal little spat like all husbands and wives do. And he overreacted to the whole thing. And he rushes out the door. And as he's running, walking across or running across, walking fast across the lawn, he takes out a pistol and he shoots himself and kills himself right there in front of the family. Jeez. I remember the last physical I had, and it, it started out an unusual way as the doctor's nurse started asking all these questions. I'm, what are you, I've never heard you ask these. It's now protocol for every medical expert in any appointment you have. We've got to start off with these questions. We kind of gauge your mental health because depression is so abundant and people with suicidal thoughts are everywhere, and we're trying to make a dent in this. I put all this together, and this is the end of, by the way, Suicide Awareness Month, and I usually ignore that kind of stuff. It doesn't have a lot to do with Sunday worship. It doesn't have a lot to do with us at church necessarily, and so I don't entertain those thoughts, but I've never dwelt on or really addressed suicide before, and, and it's become such a prevalent thing that I decide the time to end the famine is right now. This has become a, a huge problem, especially for people between 15 and 25 years old. And the elderly, the elderly and the young, about 15 to 25, are the two populations most affected by this. One every 17 minutes, somebody in the United States takes their own life. I look at this and I just go, what is going on? We live in the most prosperous world. I mean, we got things going on. we got life by the tail. Why has this become such an issue? And I could rattle off statistics, but I don't want to. And a lot of you, I think, is this way. It's like, uh, okay, so why does this belong in church? That's a good question, because why should this be in a worship of God? Well, let me tell you something. When we deal with issues of life, death, the meaning and significance of life, 
We have the best voice to give to this. We have the best seat at the table. We are a people who worship the author of life. We study the one who gave life to everybody. We gather around and we worship the one who is the source and sustainer of all life. If there's anybody in the face of the planet who has a right to speak to this, it's us. We've been given this. And not only that, we worship him and we want to be like him. And we are trying to share him with the world. We have got a message that strikes a vein with people when it comes to life and death and meaning. And I guess if I were to go to one place to start it, it's in Acts chapter 17. It was read very well a moment ago. I'm not going to reread it, but I'm going to tell you this. Paul, Paul has sermons that he preaches to people who've been to church all their lives. They're just wrong. He uses Scripture, and he brings out Scripture, and he, he tells them where this verse is, and they know exactly where it is. And then he's got sermons that he preaches to people who have no clue who God is, and this is one of those. And I want you to know that we read this every once in a while, Acts 17, we all read it, we've read it hundreds of times, and it's interesting, we say, yeah, that's a neat way to talk to people who don't have any information about God in their heads already, but it's so deep that a lot of times we go through it and we never stop and recognize the significance of what he's saying. First of all, in this section of the sermon, he said, God made every human being. God made every human being, and He is the giver of the gift of life. If you are living and breathing, it is only because the God we're worshiping today gave it to you. If you are here and listening to me, or you are functioning anywhere in the world, I'm going to tell you, the only reason you are is because God enabled you to. And He infuses every human life, every person, with dignity and value because he made us in his own image that's what he says in acts chapter 17 and then we've got these wonderful passages in psalm 139 i'm fearfully and wonderfully made that's about you by the way it's about you god knit you together in your mother's womb and he tells ezekiel to tell us behold every soul is mine the earth is the lord's and everything in it the those who dwell in it are sustained by him we serve a God who made this world and every human being, and he put a piece of himself in them. And if you're a person who says, I have no value and I have no reason to exist, you are arguing with the Creator who's much more wise than you are. He put you here for a reason. That brings us to the second thing he says in this passage. God is sovereign, and he placed you when and where he placed you. That you live in the time you live in is no accident. That you live in the place you live in is no accident. It's called the working of God's wisdom in your life. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked will I return. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We know that it's appointed for everyone to die. There's a time to live and a time to die. And everyone will die and everyone will face judgment. But only God knows the time. And until then, in the meantime, He gives you life and breath and everything you've got. If you're a person who thinks this world is better off without you, then you're arguing with God who placed you here by design on purpose. Your parents may call you a surprise, but I've got news for you. You're no surprise to the Creator who put you here. And third, God has a plan for people. He wants, He, he kind of teases us in creation by putting just enough of Himself all around us is evidence, and he says, I want people to come looking for me, because here's the truth, only when the created 
comes in contact and relationship with the Creator? Does it find its meaning and its purpose? And finally, is there direction and satisfaction in life only when the created comes in contact and relationship with the Creator? And it's by the creature's desire. He wants us to want Him. And He's just a little bit out there, and He wants us to go seeking. And if we'll go seeking, He'll show Himself to us, and He'll give us everything we need for life and godliness. This church, church, we have this message. It's a powerful one about where we came from and where we're going to and why we're here. And while there's many people who are struggling with the answers to those questions, we're the ones who know the answer. So we should speak up and we should have a place at the table when people talk about taking their own life. And if there's ever a stirring within you, a stirring within you that God's calling you to take your life, it's not God who's calling It's some other voice, and you need to discern the difference between what God speaks and His truth and the rest of the lies that sometimes filter in your brain, and you're so convinced they must be true, you're going to follow them, and they're complete lies. There are people in Scripture who model for us what it looks like when we lose sight of these. It's a, it's a blatant book. It's like God. God can see our lives with all the stuff of it, our good moments that everybody at church sees, but also the real moments nobody else sees. God lays them all out there in Scripture. And there's this man called Solomon who's supposedly the wisest man in the earth, the wisest man to ever live, but he did some awful, stupid stuff. In the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, I went searching around for the meaning of life under the sun. Now, what under the sun means is without any thought of anything beyond the here and the now. But I'm just taking into consideration what I see in the world around me. I'm going to act like there's nothing beyond the sun. I'm going to act like the only thing in life is everything that's under the sun. And he went and he went searching hard for meaning and significance and value and a reason to live and a reason to function and a reason to enjoy life. And he couldn't find it. And he says... I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. All is vanity and striving after the wind. And guys, that's true unless there's something beyond the sun. And there is. And the church has a unique role in this world of declaring to people the truth of what is beyond the sun. We need to be speaking up and sharing about that and giving people a sense of value. Because I'm going to tell you this. What we know about what's beyond the sun gives everything meaning under the sun. If you keep busy, maybe, you'll keep that at bay. You'll keep the futility that he describes out of your mind. If you just stay busy enough. But there are people in Scripture who show us that there are times when even people who are associated with the truth of God take their own lives. These are the examples of suicide that are in Scripture. People who looked at their own lives and decided it's not worth living anymore, and they took their own life. King Saul, lost in battle on the top of a mountain in, against the Philistines, and he said, I cannot let them claim they killed me. And so he takes his own life, and his armor-bearer takes his life. You've got Judas, and you know very well what he did. He betrayed Jesus with, for 30 pieces of silver, and he was so, so remorseful that he couldn't live with the regret, and he took his own life. Abimelech, Samson. Abimelech couldn't stand the thought that a woman who threw down a rock from a, hip, from a wall 
killed him, and so he killed himself so that it couldn't be said that a woman killed him. There's something noble. Samson, you know his story, Ahithophel, no one took his counsel, and his, his value of life was in his wisdom. And when people no longer took his wisdom, he set his house in order and hanged himself. And King Zimri of all of them was the most grotesque. He saw that the kingdom was falling around him and someone else was coming after him, so he, he sat in his lazy boy and set his house on fire around him. Every one of these is just examples of facts. They're not things that God approves of. He looks at that and he says, this is what happens when you try to live your life out of obedience with your Creator. And the Bible is honest in recording them. Even Jonah was so mad at the mercy of God in Jonah chapter 4, he wanted to die. And even Elijah, who experienced the incredible power of God and the fire from heaven on Mount Carmel, the very next day, he's wishing he was dead because he feels alone and this little old lady threatens his life. It's amazing to me how even people who handle the things of God and know them sometimes struggle with this issue. Taking all this together, it seems that loneliness and shame and regret and feeling useless and feeling and realizing your failure and being depressed and things not turning out like you expected them to are reasons people use to go and cut their lives short and prematurely take their own life. But in each instance, Scripture gives us plenty to think about and to say to people. Only time I ever did a funeral for a person who committed suicide was a young man just kind of a couple years out of his Boy Scout years, and because of scouting, I knew who he was. I turned the entire funeral into what would I say to him if I had known that he was feeling this way. And I want you to know we have Scripture for this, and I want to give you just a few insights from Scripture that touch on these things. First of all this, we must admit and acknowledge to people that life does get hard. I'm not going to try to say, oh, it's no big deal, you'll get through this and just kind of, you know, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. No, you need to say, life is hard and what you're going through is difficult, but I want you to know something, and this doesn't sell on TV, and this is not going to make this your favorite sermon. You're not going to come up to me afterwards and say, love that sermon, because no one loves this. But sometimes the truth needs to be told because it's the truth, not because you'll like it, and not because it's entertaining. And the truth is this, life our suffering has a purpose in the plan of God. God uses suffering, and sometimes He knows your suffering, and He does not one thing about it to rescue you or deliver you. That is life. And He's using it for something you cannot discern at the moment. We know this is true because Scripture is clear and emphatic and repetitious about the fact that you will suffer. I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is Paul speaking. Paul, his favorite, right? We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond strength that we despaired of life itself. He thought he was going to die. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. He is going to use suffering in your life, and it could be self-afflicted suffering, like spending too much and being in debt and all that. And He's going to use other things that happen in your life, and He's using them for a purpose. And the moment you lose sight of the fact that God can use suffering, it becomes so meaningless it can drive you to despair and suicide. You must keep in mind, 
Suffering has a function in your life. Viktor Frankl, who survived the concentration camp, said, those who know the why about life can bear with almost any how. If you know the why, you can bear with almost any how. Suffering, he said, ceases to be suffering when you know the meaning of life. And the worst suffering I've ever seen is the suffering of a person with depression. And people who've never suffered with depression find it mystical. I find it mystifying, but I've sat with enough of these people and talked with them. This is a legitimate ailment in life that causes you to see everything from a negative bent, a lens of negativity that even when things are done that are positive, you see them as negative and your mind works against you. There are people like this, and we need to love them, and we need to remind them even depression is used by God. James can even say, count it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Get to a point where you embrace this. This life will have suffering, even for righteous people, and God uses it for a reason. Get that through your head. And right now, some of you might be saying, I don't see any relevance to that. Just hang on. Just hang on for a minute, and you will. Second thing, if you've done awful, uh, God is always present and always gives courage to those who turn to Him. He never leaves us, He never forsakes us. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, He's with you wherever you go, but Hebrews chapter 13 is the passage I want you to see. I think of, I want you to play it in the back of your mind as you're reading this verse, It's a Wonderful Life, where Jimmy Stewart, what do you know? I have a Jimmy Stewart reference when Jimmy Stewart's here. That could not be without divine guidance. Anyway, he's about to kill himself because he thinks he's worth more dead than alive because of a money thing that wasn't even his fault. And this is a money text. That's an interesting thing. I often miss this, but this is a money text. And he says, keep your life free from the love of money. Just be content with what you have. And he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm enough. You're going to get in financial distress and you're going to get into things where you, you're, you're getting antsy and you're wanting this and you're wanting that. He says, I want you to know I'm enough. What does he use this for? I'll never leave you, forsake you. It's not, this is not dire circumstance where a lion's chasing you through the woods. It's not that. This is when you are so antsy about whether you can pay the bills this month or not. I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. This is so practical stuff, right? And we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? God is always with you, even in the most dire of circumstances. He promises to never, never leave you. The author of life is always with you, and even when difficult times come, you need to consciously think the giver of life is there. The more deeply you feel the presence of the God of life, the more he will drive away thoughts of death. That is his nature. If you've done awful things, thirdly, I'll say this, nothing is so bad that God can't forgive it. He's faithful and just and will forgive us if we confess. This is a spiritual response Judas was no worse a sinner than Peter was for what Peter did in denying Jesus three times. Judas was no worse than what Peter did, and yet Judas goes out and kills himself. Peter goes out, weeps bitterly, and comes back to Jesus and is restored. And I'm telling you, Judas could have been restored. 
He could have come back and found forgiveness and been restored, but he chose not to. God's grace was just as much available to him as to anyone else. There's not a sin that's been committed by a soul in here that can't be forgiven by God and they be restored to favor with Him. Not single one. And you may be in some dire straits and it will be difficult to overcome, but the verse for you is this last thought. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not about slam dunking a basketball to make a million dollars. This is a verse about finding contentment. Listen to the way, in context, this verse goes. Yeah, skip ahead. I, I just made reference to that one. Sorry. Keep going. Keep going. Next one. Yeah. Philippians. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, made poor, and I know how to abound, made rich. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to tell you this, whatever circumstance you're in, good or bad, Christ is the one who makes you capable of sustaining yourself in it. He's always there. Always. And that why, that's why, as you go back to the next screen, I want you to see the way I put it. You can be empowered to cope. I admire so much the message that Ron sent around about Carol. I don't know if you got this or not. But he's telling us, he's so clear on this. He's telling you what to pray for. Did you get that? He sends this text around. He says, you know what? What we found out is what Carol has is never going to be cured. It's never going to be miraculously delivered from her. She's never going to be rescued from her. So this is what I want you to pray for, that we have the grace and the strength to handle this well, the way God wants us to. I'm going to tell you this life is imperfect. We live in a fallen world, and sometimes you have to cope with junk. Sometimes you have to live with depression the rest of your life. Sometimes ALS will take over your life until you die. Sometimes that thing you want delivered will never be delivered from, and you will have to cope with it the rest of your life. And I'll never say to you, well, you pray hard enough, it'll go away. I will say to you, Jesus will never leave you ill-equipped to handle this. And Ron is saying to us, we know not to pray for rescue. What we're praying for is cope. Does that sound like a lack of faith to you? Some people, it sounds like it. Sounds to me like a person who's learned in whatever circumstance he's in, and sometimes it will stink to high heaven. This is not some miraculous gift you're given. It is something you learn in your life. And somehow, when you throw yourself on the grace of God and the power and strength of Christ, this thing becomes a tool God uses to shape you. And I'm glad, I guess, the young people are gone, because I'm going to tell you the most amazing person I ever met was a guy named Willie Sandlin, who happens to be April's dad, April Deese's dad. I watched him for years struggle with a blood disease that took away all his strength to do things. He was constantly, he would be well one day and sick another, but he always had a delightful cherubic look on his face, and he was the most wonderful person to be around. And I don't think that would have been developed without the crud of the disease that eventually took his life. Would I take away his illness if I could? 
I'm not sure. God put it there for a reason or allowed it there for a reason and didn't remove it for a reason. And I think we need to look at this and grow up as Christians and not expect I'm going to cry like a baby and I'm going to walk away from the faith if God doesn't do what I want. Sometimes he's going to just give you the strength to cope one more day. And he's going to change your life because of it. I know that sounds depressing, but I want to be realistic, right? So, okay, a couple of questions real quick. I know everybody's ready for lunch, but listen. Is suicide a sin? The answer is absolutely it is. You're murdering yourself, and all murder is wrong. Death is to come at God's timing. We're not to act in a way that prematurely brings death around just for the sake of dying. That does not mean you can't stop going from heroic measures. A lot of people that will go to great lengths to keep alive another three months. God doesn't say that. But you cannot do something to yourself or anyone else that hastens prematurely their death. You can't do that as people who believe that we serve and worship and trying to imitate the author of life. We cannot do that. It is a sin to kill yourself. Can it be forgiven? Yes. There are so many factors when it comes to suicide. The ones I've known about have all included this element of depression or PTSD. The mental state has been distorted by something. Something in their lives and the makeup of their bodies or things that they've done to themselves in the past are coming around. And because of that, they're not fully in control of their will. They're overwhelmed by something they're imagining. They're overwhelmed by something they're experiencing. And, and in a moment when they don't have complete control of their will, they take their own lives. I serve a God who's more than capable of discerning the difference between a willful, deliberate choice of destroying yourself and an accidental, some weird kind of distorted thinking that causes you to do that. Our God in the Old Testament said, it's one thing for you to kill somebody. It's another thing that something you did inadvertently killed somebody else there's a difference and if he can see that difference he can certainly see that difference in you he can see it in your makeup and the things that you do he, you are not responsible for all those things and I'm going to say this to some people and I'm going to offend some people with this don't come up afterwards and tell me that you were offended because I don't care there are some people that will say that this depression thing is a, you having a lack of faith. You can pull yourself up. And I'm going to tell you, I've met people, and I know it's legit. They aren't, they aren't capable of that. And so one of the creation mandates given in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is I want you to have dominion over the world, to use the resources of the world I've blessed you with and, and research it and figure it out and find things that can help you survive well. And there are medications that have been discovered that can help you overcome some of these depressions. Do not suffer unnecessarily when there is something that can help you. And you're going to say, no, I should have faith. No, this is a tool God's using you to teach you humility, that you can't do this by yourself. And those of you who say, oh, yes, you can, you still have yet to learn the spiritual gift of humility, and you will learn it, and it will not be good for you. We have the inability to live in this life by ourselves without help. That's the whole reason he puts us in community. I would no more say to a depressed person, just pull yourself up, than I would say to somebody who broke their leg, well, you just let your body heal itself. That pain's just imaginary and your body will figure it out. Nobody does that. 
There's a second reason why suicide can be forgiven. Your judgment before God will be rendered based on the entire body of evidence of your life, not for your worst moment and not for your final one. It is the entire evidence brought in by God. The person who committed suicide, if they spend their eternity apart from God in judgment, it's not going to be because of the suicide. It's going to be because their entire life was pointed away from God. People will say to me, well, it's unforgivable because they cannot repent. Repentance is an interesting thing because it's not an act. It is a posture. It is a mindset. The person who intently lives to please God, and I want to, I in my life, please Him as much as possible, be sensitive to everything that happens and make sure everything happens to the glory of God. I'm constantly in a repentive mindset that when I make a mistake, I'm going to fix it and I'm going to ask for forgiveness. But if, if you sin an hour after you've last prayed and you die, to think that that is not re- covered under your repentance is ridiculous because a posture of repentance means that forgiveness is constantly flowing forward and backward throughout your life. It's constantly going in your life as you have a mindset of repentance. And there'll be moments when you flub up but you're still repentant even at the same moment. The greatest way we can serve our fellow man in this conversation, in this topic of suicide, is this, to offer the genuine fellowship God intends the church to be, to be a community of acceptance and inclusion, to know each other and be involved in each other's lives, and to be able to recognize then, in my interactions with you, because I see you on a regular basis, when someone is withdrawing from their friends, when someone is forsaking uncharacteristically their life responsibilities. If we suddenly see you avoiding activities that you once enjoyed or giving away things you once valued or or I can see a persistent sadness in you and a hopelessness that overtakes your countenance I will notice that if I know you well enough. They're suddenly indecisive about things and they're experiencing really heavy life circumstances that I know about because I know you. I'm going to take note of that suddenly angry or in a rage on a regular basis. I'm going to take action. Only community awareness will empower us to recognize this. And I'm going to love you enough to ask questions and seek help. This is why the Hebrew writer puts that in there. So many people want to use, uh, forsake the assembly. You know, let's hit people over the head when they miss church once. What forsaking the assembly means, the Hebrew writer knows this. These people are on the verge. This is spiritual suicide. They're giving up the Christian faith, going back to the covenant of death. They are about to go into spiritual death, to choose spiritual death. And one of the most important things that, that the Hebrew writer says is this. Don't give up meeting together. I want you to go before God and let him correct you. And I want you to say together your confession of faith. And I want you to spur each other on. And I want you to know each other and love each other and know what's going on in each other's lives and, and hold each other up for one more week. Don't you dare give it up. And you know what he's saying to us about physical suicide the more you know and see each other the more you know something's amiss and you can do something about it he gives us community for this I've heard and read that very few people spontaneously commit suicide they've been thinking about it and they send out some signals as it's coming close 
In other words, there are opportunities for people to catch the signs. But you've got to know each other well enough to recognize them. We serve a pro-life God, and when we get together, we have a pro-life message. And we remind each other not only of our pro-life truth, but of our goal to get to eternal life. We have the truth of life, and we have the goal of life. And we get together as a community who share both. And we remind each other of the truth and we rally each other around the goal and not lose sight of that. And if anyone in our community ever does, either starts distancing themselves from that truth or from that goal, the rest of us take notice and we reach out to help. We're longing for the same thing. We want to be people who live by the truth of life and we want to get to the goal of eternal life. And I can't do it by myself. And I don't care what you're thinking in your head. You can't either. So quit trying and let's be community. A community that's pro-life. If you don't even have spiritual life because you've never confessed the name of Jesus, been immersed this morning, it's available to you. There can be someone born again, born spiritually right here in our midst. If you've done that, and for whatever reason you need to make corrections, please do so. But here's the thing. I I think a lot of the response to this message should not be coming forward at all. It's just showing up more. Just being more community. Opening up your lives to each other more and more. And as we do that, we're going to hold each other accountable to the truth of life. And we're going to get each other to that line of eternal life together. If you need to make a response, make it known as we stand and as we sing.